Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi, welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers and Confident Women, and I've been doing this podcast on and off for about three years. During that time, we have covered multiple women from war criminals to cult leaders to forensic artists to lady lawyers to wrongfully convicted women to more than one female serial killer. Now, After you listen to these episodes, you'll often hear me come in after the story is done and say the end and I'll blab on a little bit and thank my patrons and eventually my theme music will play you out and the episode will stop, right? But, of course, that's not how real life works. These stories don't just stop, even if people in question are no longer alive. The ripple effects of these stories do not stop rippling. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to walk you through eight episode updates today. These are updates on women we've covered on this podcast. And by the way, this episode is going to contain several mentions of sexual assault. So I'm just warning you. Now, you can think of these kind of as eight little pieces of flash fiction. They stand alone. And don't worry if you haven't listened to the original episode. I'm going to remind you who everyone is. They stand alone, but they're all kind of thematically related. And of course, they're not actually fiction. And I think that is going to feel very obvious by the end. All right, ready? Let's start in India. Update number one, Sister Abaya. Sister Abaya was a Catholic nun from India who was found dead in a well in the year 1992. We covered her in episode 46. It took almost 30 years for her killers to be convicted. They were just convicted, actually, right at the end of 2020. Her killers were a priest and a nun who were engaged in a illicit activity, possibly even a threesome, although there wasn't enough evidence to convict a second priest. So they were engaged in this illicit activity when Sister Abaya accidentally walked in on them. The priest and the nun panicked, strangled her, and threw her body into the well. For decades, the police kept trying to declare that Sister Abaya's death was a suicide, And it seems pretty obvious that behind the scenes for those decades, the Catholic Church was trying to hush things up. After all, the whole scenario was a terrible look for the Church. And that's why it took 30 years for any sort of justice to happen in the Sister Abaya case. It's a bizarre story, right? A killer priest and a nun, a body found in a well. But if you can believe it, Sister Abaya's death was not an isolated incident. Since her death, there have been more than 20 other nuns in India who have died mysteriously. Many of them have been found in wells. Just this year, on April 16th, a 42-year-old nun named Sister Mabel Joseph was found in a well. 
And there was a suicide note in her room saying that she was killing herself because of health problems. Some news reports show a photo of her body being lifted out of the well in a giant net. You can see her white nun's habit all wrapped around her, soaked with water. Was it a suicide, though? People are suspicious, just like they were suspicious with the Sister Abaya case. Just like they're suspicious with other similar cases. On February 14th, Sister Jessina Thomas was found floating in a quarry. In 2018, Susama Matthews was found in her convent's well, with cuts on her wrist and a trail of blood leading back up to her room. Suicide or murder? Suicide or murder? The debate rages on. These incidents hint at a deeper darkness within the Indian Catholic Church. There's a culture of rape in the church, a secret culture that is mostly hushed up. This culture emerged into the light in 2018, when the first bishop in Indian Catholic history was arrested in a rape case. His name was Franco Mulakal. It's hard not to wonder if the nuns are being killed because of something they saw, like Sister Abaya, or if they're killing themselves because of something they suffered at the hands of a bishop or a priest like Franco. What does it mean? What does it all mean, the nuns found in wells? Is it just a coincidence? The deaths continue, and still the church is silent. Update number two, Beatrice Munyanyezi. In one of our very earliest Criminal Broads episodes, episode six, we covered the unusual case of Beatrice Munyanyezi. In 1998, Beatrice came to the U.S. from Rwanda, and she told immigration officials that she had been persecuted in her home country. This was a lie an especially sinister lie, because Beatrice had been the one doing the persecution. She had been one of the rarest types of female criminals, a female war criminal. She had been involved in the Rwandan genocide, which was a massacre of the Rwandan minority ethnic group called the Tutsi. Some 600,000 people were brutally killed, and Beatrice was responsible for some of those deaths. She would stand at a roadblock with her husband, and she would look at people's identity cards as they tried to pass through. Allegedly, if she saw that they were Tutsi, she would condemn them to death. And if she saw that they were women, she would command her guards to rape them first. Beatrice lived peacefully in the U.S. for a while, with her false story of persecution, but eventually her real identity was discovered. And in 2013, she was imprisoned in the U.S. for lying about her role in the genocide. But of course, lying on immigration forms was in no way her most serious crime. Beatrice still hasn't answered for those most serious crimes. But she's about to. Just a few weeks ago, she was deported to Rwanda. And when she arrived in her home country after decades away, she was arrested immediately. She's about to stand trial again. She's now charged with the following crimes. Murder as genocide. Conspiracy to commit genocide. Planning of genocide. 
complicity in genocide, incitement to commit genocide, extermination, and complicity in rape. It has been 27 years since Beatrice's war crimes. It's been almost as long as it has been since Sister Abaya was murdered. Sometimes justice moves agonizingly slow. And the family members of Beatrice's victims, if any of them survived the genocide, wait and wait. Let's take a little break to hear from this episode's fabulous sponsors. Okay, guys, if you've seen me recently and you're like, Tori, why are you carrying around a zucchini penne pasta bake with ricotta cheese like you're a mad woman? I'll say um, it's one of my HelloFresh meals and I'm obsessed with it and it's all I want to eat from now on. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. They send you fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes. They deliver them right to your door. You don't have to go to the grocery store. You don't have to measure things out. You barely have to think. You just throw some things in a pan, and all of a sudden you're eating this zucchini, penne, ricotta, mozzarella, tomato sauce, pasta. Delight. This delight. And it was so easy. HelloFresh has a wide variety of easy, delicious options, 25-plus recipes to choose from each week, vegetarian meals, craft burgers, zucchini penne. Okay, I'll stop talking about it. But seriously, it's delicious. It's easy. Would you like to try it yourself? Oh, how convenient. Just go to HelloFresh.com slash CriminalBroads12 and use code CriminalBroads12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash CriminalBroads12. That's number one, two. And use code CRIMINALBROADS12 for 12 free meals and free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our second sponsor is Sunday Scaries. Have you ever experienced this little thing called a racing panicking mind that you can't turn off? Is it maybe linked to the fact that we've been in a global pandemic for the last year plus and we feel like we can't trust anyone and we have nowhere to turn and also we're still listening to true crime podcasts like the maniacs we are enter sunday scaries these are cbd gummies that can help turn off your racing mind quiet your anxious self so you can get a good night's sleep and wake up just feeling more like your best self in the morning Sunday Scaries were started out by two stressed out friends who wanted a healthier way to relax. They made these gummies so you can wake up fully functioning with a clear head. And if you, if that's something you feel like you need, I got you 25% off to prove how amazing they are. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code criminal for your discount. That's promo code criminal for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. They're freaking amazing. Update number three, Amy Bishop. If Beatrice Munyanyezi was an extremely rare sort of criminal, so was Amy Bishop. She was a female mass shooter. You don't see her sort on the news much. We talked about her in episode 43. 
Amy was a professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville who thought that she was a genius. And so when she didn't get tenure, she brought a gun into a faculty meeting and opened fire. She killed three of her colleagues and wounded three more. Now, you may remember from the episode that this wasn't the first time Amy had fired a gun. When she was 21, she killed her beloved younger brother, Seth, who was 18. To this day, Amy and her parents insist that it was an accident, that the gun had gone off unintentionally, that Amy didn't mean to do it. Today, I have two updates on Amy Bishop. One is kind of hilarious. The other is unbearably sad. So, when I was working on her episode earlier this year, I emailed the reporter, Patrick Radden Keefe. Now, he was the one who wrote that fantastic profile of Amy for The New Yorker, which was one of my main sources. Anyway, he sent me a mysterious link saying that it was, quote, something new and interesting that nobody seems to have picked up on yet. I clicked on the link and was shocked by what I saw. Amy Bishop had won a writing prize. Amy always wanted to be a famous writer, remember? She was part of a writing group before she was arrested, and she wrote multiple semi-autobiographical novels, and she talked a big talk about how she had an agent and how she was going to be super successful. I wouldn't say she's a super successful writer now, but at the end of 2020, she won second place in the fiction category of the 2020 Prison Writing Contest from PEN America. Her story was titled... Man of Few Words. Like her novels, it seems pretty clearly autobiographical. It's about a former professor who is in prison for life for an unspecified crime that she describes as horror. You get the picture. The main character, the professor, is on the phone with her husband, on the prison phone. Her husband tells her that one of their female friends is getting divorced. She tells him that it's okay to pursue a relationship with this female friend, that it's okay to marry her, that he should be able to find love again without her, and so on. As she tells him this, she feels horrible, but she pushes past her feelings for his sake because she knows that it's the right thing to do. The story takes place over the prison phone, in conversations between the woman and her husband. They reminisce about going to a Native American powwow when they were first dating, and by the end of the story, the husband is taking his new girlfriend to the same powwow, and he calls his wife so that she can hear the celebration over the phone. I was very judgmental of the story as I started to read it. I mean, we're talking about a story written by a mass shooter here. This is not my favorite sort of person. And Amy Bishop, as you probably remember, is just so arrogant. Here's the brief mention that she gives to her crimes in this story. And I quote, For ten seconds, that I thankfully don't remember, I became horror. I, a law-constrained mother and assistant professor of biology, am in Tutwiler Prison, Butthole, Alabama, on life without parole. I just hated that line so much when I read it. For 10 seconds that I thankfully don't remember, I became horror. Talk about underplaying the time you slaughtered three people. And then I kept reading and I moved from judgment to mocking laughter. There are moments in this story that are so overwritten. My favorite, aka least favorite, is the time that Amy writes about vaginas using the language of Homer. 
Here's the paragraph. My jealousy rages, and I wish I could recall my words of release, but I can't. It's the right thing to do, to let my 40-something husband find someone with whom to spend his life. Jack should not grow old alone, his blue eyes going white with cataracts without ever having seen again the wine-dark flower of a woman. In case you don't know what I or Amy is talking about, Homer often uses the phrase wine-dark sea in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So first I was judging this story and then I was mocking, but then I reached the end of the piece and I had to admit that Amy Bishop had actually written something that felt emotionally true. By the end of the story, she really does manage to convey what it must be like to be in prison for life, trying to release your husband so that he can find happiness again, and just writhing with jealousy as you do it. It sounds brutal. She writes about being on the phone and hearing her kids having fun in the background. And she screams into the prison phone, I love you, hoping that they'll hear her. That moment felt so real and heartbreaking that I have to say it kind of put a lump in my throat. I think she might deserve that second place prize just for that. So that's the first update on Amy. The second one is so much sadder. Remember how Amy's brother Seth died of a gunshot when he was 18 years old? Years later, when Amy herself had a son, she named him Seth. And now, that Seth, Seth Jr., is dead. He died of a gunshot wound just a few weeks ago on April 19th. He was 20 years old. He was shot by a friend who has been charged with reckless murder. And what's reckless murder? If you can believe it, reckless murder is a charge that includes things like accidentally firing off a gun. Now, it's easy to laugh when Amy references Homer in her stories. But there's this Homeric tragedy to her life that seems impossible for her family to escape. It's like she's living under a curse. Or she is the curse. Update number four, Jasmuheen. Let's move on to a lighter topic. Do you all remember Jasmuheen? She was the subject of episode four of Criminal Broads, and she has been on my mind ever since 2018 when I first discovered her wicked ways. I am obsessed with her story because I think she's so sinister and she'll never admit it. In fact, she paints herself as a really, really evolved person. Jasmuheen is a Bretharian. She claims that she doesn't need food to live. And multiple people have died after following her teachings. But she rarely comments on these deaths because they're obviously horrible for her brand. If she does comment on them, she just says that these people weren't doing the Bretharian thing right. Today, Jasmuheen refuses any scientific testing of her teachings, but back in the day, she did try to get science to verify her. She went on the Australian TV show 60 Minutes, and she agreed to be filmed around the clock in order to prove that she didn't need to eat or drink. After four days of filming, her pulse was high, her blood pressure was down, and she'd lost about 13 pounds. 
She was talking strangely. She was slurring a bit. And the doctor on call was basically like, you are going to die if you keep this up. And so they stopped filming. Later, Jazz Muheen emailed out a press release that read, What appears to be delusion to some is simply a preferable reality to others. For without our dreams and visions, humanity has no hope. So what's Jazz Muheen up to today? Is she still talking about eating air and surviving only on prana? Oh yes, she keeps up a strong online presence with Facebook posts that I can only describe as word salad. Here's one of them. I think we are all understanding the power we each have to step out of the holograms of limitation as we have entered a time where this is more powerful a choice than ever before. Hence, we offer all that we do here to support this in the most nourishing way, for we are all gifted with the ability to anchor in the zone of reality of our choice as per our first course that we offered. Did you catch that word, course? Oh yes, there are plenty of ways to give Jasmuheen your money. For about four bucks, you can buy The Law of Love and its Fabulous Frequency of Freedom. For a bit more, you can purchase Relationship and Networks Upgrades Meditation. And if you want to spend about $250 at her store, you can buy a course that teaches you all about living a life of effortless ease and grace. Now, I'm not going to say that the pandemic hasn't affected Jasmine. Sadly, it's caused her to pause something she's calling her annual darkroom retreats. These retreats are a place where you can tune in to the, quote, pranic living lifestyle and the source-feeding reality. As usual, Jasmuheen uses very vague, distracting terminology when describing things, possibly so no one can come after her for the multiple deaths that her Breatharian teachings have at least indirectly been involved with. Anyway, What are these retreats, you ask? Oh, they are the once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend nine days and nine nights in a completely dark cave with Jasmuheen by your side. I mean, can you put a price on that? During these nine days and nights, you will, quote, live like yogis and apply powerful life-enhancing methodology of interdimensional energy field science. If that's not the most terrifying thing you've ever heard, then be of good cheer. Jazzmuheen.com promises, we hope to resume these as soon as we can. In the meantime, we have our powerful online training programs. There are plenty of links on the page where you can click to buy them. Update number five, Carol Ann Fugate. Carol Ann Fugate was only 14 years old when she was arrested, along with her boyfriend, the spree killer Charles Starkweather. Charlie murdered 11 people, including three of Carol's family members, in the late 1950s. Carol went to prison. Charlie went to the electric chair. We covered them in episode eight. People have always, always disagreed about whether Carol was guilty or innocent. Was she a sweet, naive 14-year-old forced along on a murder spree by her controlling, abusive older boyfriend? Or did she herself have the heart of a murderer? Charlie always said that she was culpable. He claimed that she'd killed some of their victims herself. And he famously said that if he were going to the electric chair, Carol Ann should be sitting on his lap. 
That quote was so iconic that Bruce Springsteen put it in a song. Sheriff, when the man pulls that switch, sir, and snaps my poor head back, he sings, you make sure my pretty baby is sitting right there on my lap. But Carol has insisted that she was innocent from the moment she was arrested. Her side of the story is that she never knew that Charlie had killed her family. Instead, she says that he used them to threaten her, saying that he would kill them if she didn't come along with him. She was given life in prison, but she was paroled after 17 years. Since her parole, Carol has kept a low profile, but sometimes she'll resurface to keep arguing that she's innocent. In 1996, she applied for a pardon. Here's what a pardon does, according to law.com. A pardon strikes the conviction from the books as if it had never occurred, and the convicted person is treated as innocent. The Nebraska Board of Pardons refused to give her a hearing. But she tried again, recently, in 2020. In this second application, she wrote, The idea that posterity has been made to believe that I knew about and or witnessed the death of my beloved family and left with Starkweather willingly on a murder spree is too much for me to bear anymore. Receiving a pardon may somehow alleviate this terrible burden. The Board of Pardons once again denied her. That is not the role of the pardons board, one member said. We can't come in and alleviate the burden she feels for this case. Family members of the victims expressed different opinions. People are always expressing different opinions about Carol. The cousin of one victim said, I can't express in words how overjoyed and happy I am that she did not get pardoned. The granddaughter of two victims had a different take. I have met her and she has cried in my arms and I have cried in her arms, said the granddaughter. And she feels damned pain. You can bet it. This woman has been in pain all her life. I'm not sure we'll ever know exactly how the story went back in the 50s. As they say, there's Charlie's side of the story and there's Carol's side of the story, and perhaps the truth is in a third version that we'll never access. But it's interesting to see how people react to Carol. I did a talk recently, and I asked audience members if they had any true crime anecdotes to share with me. And one of them... Judy emailed me afterwards. She had some thoughts on Carol. Having grown up in Lincoln, Nebraska, we all thought Carol Ann Fugate was a definite con artist to the umpth degree, Judy wrote. She wanted us, the public, to believe that she was actually the victim, when in fact it did become known that not only was she responsible for killing several people, but perhaps even derived pleasure from doing so. So, that's how a lot of people felt in Nebraska at the time and still feel to this day. Judy also shared another anecdote from those days, one that I found especially spooky. Charlie Starkweather was electrocuted, she wrote, and the night of, several friends and I were talking to each other via our kitchen wall phones, our overhead lights in our respective kitchens dimming. Update number six, Anne Hamilton Byrne. We talked about the cult leader Anne Hamilton Byrne in episode 19. Anne was a nefarious cult leader who styled herself as Jesus and adopted slash stole multiple children who she abused and forced to take LSD, pretending it was a spiritual experience. 
And she pretty much got away with it all. By the time people knew about her crimes, much of the evidence had vanished. When our episode aired on February 13th, 2019, Anne was in her 90s and suffering from dementia. All of her answers and explanations and excuses were now locked away inside her forever. And four months later, she passed away at the age of 97. One of her adopted sons, Ben Shenton, wrote of her death, It's hard to feel grief or sadness at her passing from this temporal world because of the broken families, suicides, drug addictions, and overdoses, the financial crippling of everyone who gave to her. It was like a black hole that people gravitated to and had the life sucked out of them. A detective who worked on her case, but who could never bring her to prison, said, I have spoken with a number of her children, and a number of them feel relieved, like I do. I've shed not one tear. As a matter of fact, when she passed away on Friday, it was one of the best days of my life. Anne had always presented herself as immortal, and she got the facelifts and wore the wigs to prove it, to show that she never aged. But in the end, she was just like the rest of us, mortal. Rosie Jones, a filmographer who actually came on this podcast to talk about Anne, visited Anne in her nursing home and called it an extraordinary encounter. She was dressed beautifully in blue and still had long silver hair, Rosie told The Guardian. Her speech was mostly incoherent, but she sat there, nursing a plastic baby doll. She held the doll so tenderly, so gently. I found it incredibly powerful to witness. Update number seven, Poulan Devi. Of all the broads I've covered, the one who's gotten the best reaction from you all has got to be Poulan Devi, the bandit queen of episode 11. No other broad has elicited such admiration from my listeners. So many cries of, hell yes. It's been years since we've talked about her, so let me refresh your memory. Poulan was an Indian girl born into extreme poverty in rural Uttar Pradesh. She was feisty and she was punished for it. She was in a lower caste and she was punished for it. She was a girl and she was punished for it. Poulan was married off when she was 11. She endured repeated rapes, not just from her creepy older husband, but also from the higher caste men in her village. But remember, she was feisty. And so she ran off and joined a group of bandits. But even bandits have hierarchies. There were caste tensions in her gang, and there were jealousies, and eventually the gang splintered and fought, and the bad half of the gang kidnapped Poulan and took her to a nearby village called Behmai. There, for the next three weeks, she was raped and beaten and paraded around naked by the upper caste men of the village. She eventually managed to escape, and she formed a new gang but she never forgot what had happened to her at Behmai. And so on February 14th, 1981, Poulan and her bandits returned, lined up 20 of the upper caste men of the village, and opened fire. Fast forward 20 years. Poulan was now famous, beloved, 
People thought of her as Robin Hood, even though she might not have actually ever given any money to the poor. As her bandit career came to an end, she negotiated with the authorities, and she got herself and her fellow bandits a pretty decent deal. She spent about 10 years in prison, and then she embarked on a political career. Eventually, she was even elected to be a member of parliament. Like I said, people loved her. But if Poulon never forgot what she had suffered, other people never forgot what she had done. And in the heat of the afternoon, on July 26, 2001, three masked men pulled up outside Poulon's house and opened fire. She was shot nine times. It was revenge, they said, for the massacre at Behmai 20 years earlier. It has now been 40 years since the Behmai massacre, and no one has ever been officially found guilty for the murders. It wasn't until 2012 that anyone was even charged for the murders. A court charged Poulon, who was already dead, and 22 of her bandit men. Today, only seven of the accused are alive, and three of those seven are missing. The court was supposed to give a verdict in January 2020, but then some important paperwork went missing and the verdict was postponed yet again. If you read Poulon's memoir, the Behmai massacre is a moment of great relief, of delicious vengeance. Of course she killed them. These men did unspeakable things to her. But then, if you listen to the villagers of Behmai who survived the massacre, a different narrative emerges. They say that Poulon killed men at random, not simply the men who raped her. Some of the men that she killed were just boys, 11 and 12 years old. On the one hand, of course she returned to the village of her nightmare and rained down fire on them. And yet... A man named Rajaram Singh lost two of his brothers in the massacre, one of his cousins and three of his nephews. Our village witnessed 20 cremations on a single day, he told a journalist. On that day, I was shivering like anything. In the last 39 years, there has not been a single day when we lived happily. Rajaram went to every single court hearing and hoped to live long enough to see a verdict. But he died in December of 2020 at the age of 85, still waiting. Now his son waits for him. And Poulon still rests, hopefully in peace. Update number eight, Hollywood. If you spend much time thinking about how true crime is an industry, you probably won't be surprised to hear that there are a number of new books and movies about our criminal broads that are now coming out. There's a movie coming out about Griselda Blanco, the Colombian drug queen who we covered in episode 18. The title of the movie is The Godmother. And Griselda is being played by none other than Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo says, I've been fascinated by the life of this corrupt and complicated woman for many years. And Griselda's surviving son, Michael, wrote on Instagram, So happy to hear that this is going to happen. Finally, J-Lo is una patrona. It's only right she plays my mother, the late, great Griselda. I'm pretty sure that una patrona means something along the lines of the boss, but Spanish-speaking listeners, let me know if there's a better translation. 
Moving right along, there's yet another TV show coming out about Casey Anthony, episode 47's subject. This one is by Lifetime. It's called Cellmate Secrets, and it'll focus on Casey's case as well as stories like Drew Peterson and Chris Watts' Shocker, Shocker. As we've seen by now, the appetite for these famous stories is almost literally bottomless. Let's travel down to Brazil for a moment. Remember episode 36 on Suzanne von Richthofen, the rich white Brazilian girl who convinced her boyfriend and his brother to bludgeon her parents to death? Now there are two movies coming out about her in Brazil, one from her perspective and one from her boyfriend's perspective. I have a lot of Brazilian readers because my first book, Lady Killers, was translated into Portuguese, not to brag. And so I reached out to them to get a sense of how people were feeling about the movies. Because, now this may be obvious, but sometimes it's easy to forget and it's also really interesting. Other countries don't always feel the same way that America does about true crime as a genre. So here's what they said. Multiple people described a sense in Brazil that people don't want to keep thinking about this case. They want to forget about it. Brazil is a really conservative country. People don't like to talk about crimes and things like that, said Andre. Kelly says that rumors are swirling. Some people are upset because they think that the criminals are being glorified or that they'll get some profit, according to the company, they won't, or that the movies were being made with government money. They weren't, she writes. Malou says that people are worried that the movie is a way to forgive Suzanne, but that other people are excited because the main actress, Carla Diaz, was a member of the 2021 cast of Big Brother Brazil. And Rafaela describes how Brazil's true crime fans are waiting for it with anticipation. True crime fans are waiting for the movie as we wait for Netflix productions about Ted Bundy or Son of Sam, you know, she writes. The real indignation is that our justice is shit, and she's and always will be a psychopath and almost free. But she's beautiful, white, well-spoken, and has a lot of fans here on the internet. She also writes that she feels bad for Suzanne's brother, Andres. He's so intelligent, she writes. I mean, he has a doctorate degree in inorganic chemistry. But every year we hear that he's at some clinic after another mental breakdown. I can't even imagine his pain. Speaking of Ted Bundy, have you heard that there's yet another movie coming out about him? I believe this is officially movie number 10,576. This one stars Elijah Wood as an FBI agent who interrogates Bundy. And as Hollywood stumbles over themselves to release this latest Bundy film, Kathy Kleiner is quietly working on her memoir. We heard Kathy's story in her own words on episode 33. Kathy survived Ted Bundy's brutal attack at the sorority Chi Omega. She was literally in the room with Bundy as he was trying to kill her and her roommate. This would be the first time that a Bundy survivor gets to be the author of a traditionally published book, rather than a name in the endnotes. My writer friend Emily Lucchese is working with Kathy on this, and she texts me, Kathy is very focused on making sure all the victims are named and included in this story. She's really carrying the weight of 36 shadows. And the list goes on. In Indiana, a TV crew has started filming the trailer for their movie about serial killer Belle Guinness of episode 8. In Australia, there's a hip little restaurant named Love Tilly Divine after the fabulous 1930s crime queen we covered in episode 12. I was actually Googling the restaurant to see if there was anything interesting to say about it, and I found that Gwyneth Paltrow's website Goop wrote about it. 
Love, Tilly Divine, is the kind of place you think about long after you've left, they wrote. Maybe it's the 300-bottle-strong wine list, or the irresistible small plates masquerading as bar snacks, like pickled sardines on toast, zucchini with walnut, and prosciutto with plums. Or those stool seats by the open windows. By now, we are so far from the actual crimes of Tilly Divine, from the jail time and the weapons and the blood in the streets— that it kind of blows my mind. Pickled sardines on toast? What? Wait, how? How did we get here? I'm always startled by how the lines between crime and commerce overlap, even though I'm a living, breathing example of how crime and commerce can overlap. I'm always having to remind myself, this is all real. Sure, there are stories, and some of these people are long gone, but it was all always real. Meanwhile. In Florida, a 72-year-old black man sits in prison. He's been there since he was 19. His name is Lloyd Dean. Do you remember him? He's the son of Marie Dean Arrington, who was a murderess and an escape artist and the second woman to make the FBI's 10 most wanted list. We talked about her in episode 42. She committed her murder because she was trying to get her son out of prison He had been given a life sentence for the crime of robbing a gas station as a teenager. After our episode aired, I wrote to Lloyd. I just felt like I wanted to say hello. It felt weird to do an episode on his mom and just ignore the fact that he was a real person who was still alive. So I wrote to him, and he sent back a lovely note. He told me that he and his mom wrote to each other often when she was still alive, even though they were both in prison. He signed it, Always Evidence Love in Your Life. I sent him another note recently telling him about this very episode, and I asked if he wanted to share anything with you all, any memory from his life that we might like to know. Here's what he wrote. Dear Tori, Hi, I've received your email and it's great to hear from you as well, Tori. A loving heart will never part. I'm the elder of my mother's five children, All my life, I remember my mom as an understanding and loving mom. She taught me to seek one's understanding and friendship. I vividly remember the first time in my life that I had seen my mom so overjoyed in 1959 when I was 10 years old and I was at school in fourth grade. And my school teacher was Miss Judlier Miller. I was in Miss Judlier Miller's class and she was the niece of Miss Mary McLeod Buthane, the founder of Buthane Cookman College. The principal called her and said my mom was there and for her to come with me to the office. So when we arrived at the office, the principal asked me, did I devote a lot of my time to study? I told him yes. The principal asked Miss Miller about my grades. I made all straight A's, so Miss Miller said I had an IQ of a 7th grade student. The principal and Miss Miller discussed about me taking the standard test, so I took the test and I passed it. Therefore, I didn't have to go through 5th grade or 6th grade, so I knew what the 5th grade and 6th graders knew. So I entered junior high at the age of 11. Continue to have faith in your Lord, and may all be well with your family and peace unto you. Lloyd. Imagine Marie's pride in her son in that moment. Imagine Lloyd's pride in herself and his joy in seeing his mother proud. That's a memory that stuck with him all this time, through over half a century in prison. And that's Marie's son, 
Marie Dean Arrington of episode 42. Yeah, you heard about her on a podcast, which is just a little bit removed from everyday life, right? And I wrote about her in a coffee shop, and we all went about our lives afterward. But everyone in that story was real. It was all, always real. Thank you for listening, everyone. Now, after I recorded the bulk of this episode, I actually got one more update. This one is from Jennifer Mee, who became famous in 2007 for a long-lasting case of the hiccups. The media called her Hiccup Girl. She went on a bunch of talk shows. And then in 2010, she was involved in a robbery where someone was shot and killed, and she is currently serving a life in Florida. So I had promised you all an interview with Jennifer, and we've been working on it, but she's run into a bunch of problems on her end. Um, The prison keeps going on lockdown because of COVID, etc. Anyway, she did send me a brief email to read to you all that answers a couple questions, so I didn't have time to include it in the episode proper, but I'm going to read it to you now. So this is from Jennifer Mee. She says, First and foremost, I want to say thank you to everyone that is going to be listening to this. So I know there are a lot of questions that are being asked, and I want everyone to know I appreciate it. So the first question that was asked is, how is my day-to-day life? Well, I wake up at 6 a.m., take a shower, and do my devotionals. Then I clean my room. I'm currently in GED trying to get my diploma, so I go to school Monday through Thursday. If I'm not in school, then I'm trying to find ways to get back to court. The next question that was asked, how do I feel about what happened in 2007 with the media? Well, personally, I feel like it was an interesting experience, but what happened in 2010 was never supposed to happen, and it breaks my heart every day to know someone's life was taken for no reason. The other question that was asked is, how did corona impact my life? Well, I have had it. It was the worst thing to have to deal with. Our compound is still on lockdown two years later. Things are just now starting to get to normal a little bit. It has been rough. Last but not least, people are wondering, do I talk to my co-defendants? No, I don't talk to either one of them. I do think about them and pray they are doing well. I would like to know how they are holding up. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for all the support. So that's from Jennifer Mee to you all, directly to you all. Now, before I let you go, I have kind of a weird request for you. Um, Give me your money. (laughs) No. Um, So I want to send a little bit of money to Lloyd Dean, Marie Dean Arrington's son, just because um, he is 72. You know, I just want him to be able to like buy a few things to make his life a little bit more comfortable. He's been in prison for half a century for a crime he committed when he was 19. No one died. You know, it just makes me really sad. And he's had the he's been very nice in corresponding with me. And I'd like to send him a little bit of money. So If anyone wants to join me, I'd be happy to pass along your donations, too. Now, I'm going to send him money using this thing called JPay, which is a way that you can send, like, messages or money to incarcerated people. It's great. So if you want, you can Venmo me. My username is at Tori-Telfer. I'll put it in the show notes. If you don't have Venmo and you want to give money, you know, email me and we can figure out another way. 
um, and I will compile everything and keep track of everything and send it to him. I just I don't want to use a GoFundMe or whatever because I you know we're not trying to raise like ten thousand dollars here, just a little bit of cash to give him, and I just think it'll be easier to do this way. Um, I promise I'm not a con woman. It would be ironic if I was, given that I've written a whole book on it. I just if I was a con woman, I don't think I'd write a book on it. Or would I? Is that the ultimate con? No, it's not. Um, okay. So yeah, I'll put the info in the show notes. Please feel free to join me if you two are like touched by his situation. And speaking of Lloyd's letter, that was read by the amazing voice actor Darius Johnson. If you need him to hire him for all your voiceover needs, I'll put his website in the show notes. Okay, last but not least, hello, patrons, for this episode. Thank you, thank you to Joe S., Allison B., and Karina Michelle, whose name you may recognize from, she was my co-host on our podcast, Red Flags. Thanks, Karina. Love you. Thank you, everyone else. Patreon.com slash Criminal Broads if you want to support the podcast. Another great way to support the podcast is rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's like very, very helpful if you do that. Next week, I'm going to actually be re-releasing an old episode with a new introduction because I myself am going to be road tripping and taking a little time off. And then for the month of June, guys, we have a theme. We have a theme. We're doing a single theme for all of June. Maybe even a bonus episode if I can get my act together. So get excited. I'm not going to tell you what the theme is yet, but I'll tell you next week. All right. Hope you're having a lovely week and that it's warming up where you are or cooling down or whatever feels best. And I'll talk to you here, same time, same place, next week. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.